The thing about any addiction is that it'll never say no to you. Even when it hurts you, your addiction never calls you or forces you. You summon it. You actually hold the power over it, but that power controls you for one reason or another. Bit by bit, it wears you down. It starts small with just a little tug at your sleeve, but then it pulls harder and harder until you give up that power. Addiction is the demon that whispers in your ear telling you that the only way to find peace is to give in to what it wants. Addiction is a thief. It steals your time, your money, your sanity. But the worst part of all is that it isolates you from the people who love you and care about you the most. My guest, Sam Perez, is an up-and-coming local journalist who recently moved to Columbia, South Carolina. But before her move, Sam grew up in Kentucky with parents who worked in the restaurant industry. Already successful in this space, her parents decided to give back to the community. They opened Deviate Kitchen in Lexington, a restaurant that exclusively hires people in recovery. She would help her parents at Deviate Kitchen, and it was through interactions with people in recovery that Sam saw how addiction could touch anyone. Regardless of their background or circumstances, it didn't discriminate. But it didn't have to be a lifelong sentence either. Thanks to her parents, Sam knows there's hope for those struggling with addiction. Sam has written a book called Deviate from Denial, which I link in the show notes along with her website. The book details her experiences growing up in the recovery world and how it shapes her views on addiction and recovery. She hopes that by sharing this story, it'll help others understand the importance of second chances. Sam and I had a great conversation that touched on these experiences and the components of addiction in society today. We also discussed the state of local news and how it's consumed, among other things. And it was definitely a great conversation all around. But find out for yourself, and I hope you enjoy the Sam Perez with Jake Ocean. Watch out. You might get what you're after. Welcome to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with new knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. My guest today is Sam Perez. Sam is a multi-skilled journalist for WLTX TV News 19 a graduate of the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communications and Franklin College of Arts and Sciences in Journalism and Spanish. Sam's book, Deviate from Denial, is due out in September, which speaks to those suffering from addiction and their loved ones who grapple with erasing the stigma of addiction through starting the conversation. Sam, welcome and thank you for being on the show. Awesome, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I know you had to uh, make some time. You said you just moved out to South Carolina in the last few weeks. Yes, I did. So I'm from Kentucky, but I've been in Georgia the past four years going to school. And so uh, now I'm in South Carolina in Gamecock territory. It's definitely new. um, But, you know, I'm trying not to bark at everyone here. So it's been going well. (laughs) 
must be difficult after years of um, indoctrination where you are, right? <laughs> hey, hey, some call it that, uh, you know, but it got us the national championship. So, you know, I'm a happy camper. That's can't, what I'll say. Can't complain with that. I really have no skin in that game, so <laughs> I, I really yeah. have nothing to say. I'm up in New Jersey, so. Okay, gotcha, um, yeah. But I wanted to reach out and talk to you because I, I saw your book, obviously, and I just thought it was really interesting. If you can just give the audience a little bit of background into what made you write the book and where it comes from. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am a journalist and I love telling stories and I always have and I've always loved getting to know people, getting to know their background and, uh, you know, sharing that. And so that's something that I've loved ever since middle school. That's why I pursued journalism. That's why I do the job that I do. And I also love the way I grew up, which was around addiction. So my parents are, my dad is in recovery and then my parents opened a restaurant in 2017 that hired people in recovery from substance use disorder, which is addiction. Um, and so through that, I met so many awesome people. I learned from my parents and their experiences, and I saw that there were so many great stories worth telling. So in August, I decided to really sit down and, you know, bring those stories to life in the form of a book. Okay. So are they stories of people you know, or is there more to it than that yeah, that's as far a good as? question. So that's how it started out. Uh, when I sat down and, you know, decided to actually put pen to paper and start writing, my plan was really just to tell stories of people I've met or people that my family has kind of come to know through their restaurant. But then as I started writing, I mean, the world of substance use disorder is so huge and there's so much to cover that I ended up putting in a little bit of research. I talked to people from different perspectives, maybe who haven't experienced addiction themselves, but who are familiar with the topic. So, you know, recovery experts and physicians, things like that. And so I ended up kind of taking all of that information and putting it into a book with three parts. So part two is the biggest, and that is telling stories and just sharing about how addiction has affected different people, mainly deviate employees, but not entirely. That's really cool. What did you find in your studies? What's a piece of information that people might not know that you found and maybe even shocked you a little bit? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So um, I think kind of the core of the book focuses on how addiction doesn't discriminate. And that is something that I've come to know well. That's something that my family's come to know well. But even through the process of writing the book, I feel like that was something that I kind of came to grips with even, you know, in myself. And that was one of the most interesting, I think, chapters for me to sit down and write is, you know, I talk about how addiction doesn't discriminate, how it affects everyone, no matter, you know, your age or your gender or your race or your socioeconomic status, anything. I mean, it doesn't discriminate. But I kind of had this moment of realization as I was researching and as I was writing and talking to people of like, man, it could affect me. And that's crazy. And, and that whole kind of layer was something that I feel like I went through that process as I was writing and I was able to include in the book. So I think kind of that just introspective, I guess, part of it is something that I certainly didn't really expect to come across when I was writing. And it really struck me. And, uh, you know, I think that's hopefully when people are reading my book, kind of something that they maybe consider. Yeah, it's always different. The idea in your head to what happens when you get, get it down on paper is, is something totally different. So, you know, it's funny. So when I saw you were writing that book, I remember, I um, I don't know if you read him, but Johan Hari had a book called Chasing the Scream. And that's what it reminded me of. I, I thought it was interesting because 
what he said was the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. It's actually connection. And I don't know if, if you found that or you have a different absolutely. take on that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Um, so one thing that is so crucial for people in recovery is connection. And it's it's really that face-to-face kind of interaction and getting to find community. And that is kind of the antithesis of addiction because addiction is something that's so isolating for so yeah. many reasons. It's something that's so stigmatized. And I think pe- people in active addiction feel so alone. So really, yeah, the opposite of it is connection. And I think that's why right now, kind of as we're coming on the heels of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're seeing that addiction has taken a grip on our society in an even bigger way. We were headed in that direction. And I think COVID really accelerated that because people were missing connection. They didn't have that. And, you know, we were all isolated and and I think that really contributed to the problem and left us with you know this this horrible magnitude that I think has accelerated faster than we expected yeah that's a great point actually um, because people were so cut off and and you're right it's addiction is something that becomes it is isolating in itself but a lot of times our reaction to it is to cut people out who are addicted, whether it's family members, you know, I've heard that tough love talk, you gotta let them hit rock bottom, but um, you're really isolating somebody further. Absolutely. But that's an interesting point with COVID. I mean, we, I mean, the opioid, oh, I can't talk, (laughs) opioid crisis. (laughs) If I'm not thinking about it, it comes out fine. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, don't mess that up. The opioid (laughs) crisis hit every level of society. Cause I, I remember when I was younger, it wasn't a big deal and the type of people it was associated with weren't i don't want to say weren't cared about but people just kind of like yeah you know, no absolutely they were on the fringes of society yeah and that's kind of something that i talk about in my book that was one of those topics where i started writing and you know i didn't expect to really go into that territory but i did and it's because now i mean that addiction has affected so many people and like i said it doesn't discriminate it affects everyone in every different way it seems like now we really care and i just think that's a really interesting thing to realize of like oh when it affected people that were maybe more marginalized or or didn't look like you or i uh you know we didn't care as much and it wasn't in the news like it is now and now that it's spread and it's this huge problem that does affect literally everyone now we care and that's when you know more recovery centers are popping up and we have federal funding and things like that and so i think recognizing that and you know not being blind to that is really important um but i think that no matter who you are no matter what you look like no matter where you come from you know you're not immune and it does affect you know anyone and i think that's really important to realize yeah even when i was younger and i I remember i worked in some well-off places and you would see it it was starting to hit the the teens there especially the athletes you know they 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 hurt themselves they they might get oxy or something like that and all of a sudden next thing you know it's they're on heroin (laughs) yeah it's crazy Absolutely. And that's what's so crazy is just I think it was so understudied and this is such a new kind of phenomenon that's happening that people didn't really understand it and didn't really know what to expect. And then all of a sudden it it feels like, I mean, in the blink of an eye, you know, this issue is just accelerated. And like you said, I mean, people start on pills and then all of a sudden they're transitioning to heroin. And I think there's a lot of confusion of how that transition happens and you know some people that maybe don't even realize it is a transition and you don't just start out one day using heroin yeah. um, or you 
through drugs. But yeah, I mean, it's the snowball effect that it seems like can't be stopped. I mean, people are getting addicted every single day. It's it's really crazy. Yeah. You mentioned how the epidemic began in the first place. So can you just take us through that a little bit? Absolutely. So basically, the opioid epidemic started when they started to focus a lot on, and they being hospitals and treatment providers, started to focus on pain. So, you know, throughout the history of the world, pain has always existed. It's always been a part of life. And for a long time, it was just considered as something that was normal to go through. And, you know, let's say you break a leg, you go to surgery, you're in pain. And that was expected and it was normal. And no one, not to say no one cared, because I'm sure doctors were sympathetic and no one wants to be in pain, but it was just, you know, kind of how it was. And that was until some um, different drugs like Oxycontin started to come out and eventually pain started to be treated by physicians as the fifth vital sign. And for good reason, because that meant that, you know, hospitals and physicians were having happier patients because, you know, if you're not in pain, you're a lot happier. And so they started to prescribe more and more opioids without really realizing just how addictive they could be. And there was a lot of miscommunication and, and under studying that led to this, them being overprescribed, and so physicians were handing out pills and, and just not realizing that they were sending people away with the means to literally ruin their lives. And so by the time we realized that, you know, this medicine that we're giving out freely is incredibly addictive, it was already too late. You already had people that were hooked, and it's expensive, and yeah. so people would turn from pills and go to harder drugs that are cheaper and easier to find, like heroin. Did Big Pharma play a role in pushing that as well? I've read that, but I don't know if that's, you know, we blame everything on Big Pharma. Not that they're not at fault, but for a lot of things. And interestingly enough, so that is a part that I kind of touch on in my book. I I don't give a whole lot of light to that just because I think there are other authors and other books that do a phenomenal job of kind of pointing that out. And, you know, with everything going on being in the news right now, I think people are really starting to see how things evolved and what happened. But absolutely, I mean, Big Pharma was a big part of this. And I think it's such a buzzword. And it's a complex issue. And that's the thing. I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, Big Pharma caused all of this. But that's just I mean, that's not completely true. There was a lot of different factors that played into it. But that was certainly a big part of the problem. And I think a lot of it stemmed from just a lack of knowledge and a lack of awareness about what was happening, about what was in these drugs, about how it was affecting people. And unfortunately, I think we've kind of continued that lack of information when it comes to looking at people that currently are struggling with substance use disorder. It's an issue that's so stigmatized. We think of addiction and, you know, a lot of times this mental image appears and we don't want to talk about it. We push it under the rug. We don't talk about it. And that's how the problem continues. And so that's kind of what I'm hoping with this book is to try and just start that conversation and be like, okay, you know, it is, it's a, it's a nitty gritty issue and there are a lot of complexities, but let's go ahead and unpack it and talk about it because pushing it under the rug isn't working. No, it isn't, obviously. And it's it's affecting, like you said, people of all ages. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. I mean, it's something that I see talked about more. I don't see or I haven't read how to combat it. Now, I know they're not issuing um, or the doctors aren't prescribing these as, as readily as they once did. And it's a little more controlled as far as how much you have to go back to get these medications and stuff like that. But is there other things in place now that they're trying to do or, or we're still just way behind 
Um, we're pretty behind on it, I'd yeah. say, but I do think with it being in the news and with people getting addicted and, you know, this being really reported on and covered and talked about more and more, um, I do think there are things in place. So, for example, like you said, how physicians are trying to prescribe less, and that's great, but it doesn't always happen. I mean, there are still over-prescriptions happening. And a big problem, and I spoke to a doctor and kind of talked in the book about this, is so now you have this population of people that are addicted. Let's say they're taking this huge dosage of Oxycontin daily and they need it and then now you have doctors that are worried and they're afraid and they realize this is bad so they want to just take these people that are you know addicted and dependent on the substance off the medicine but that's a whole other problem because when I mean some people can go cold turkey but a lot of times that's really dangerous there are very real physical repercussions when you know you're addicted to a substance and you all of a sudden stop it so it's kind of this other issue of like okay so at least we realize this isn't good we don't want to continue this but I mean, what's what's the best thing to do? What's the best option for these people? You know, how are we going to manage that? And so I think there are definitely people in the medical community that are trying to figure that out and, you know, dealing with things like insurance companies to try and set thresholds of, you know, what's appropriate to wean someone off. How quick do you wean someone off of the substance they're on? So there are different steps being taken like that. And then also just different funding and different resources going into recovery centers to help people who, you know, are struggling and maybe realize that they have a problem that they can't fix on their own. So there are definitely different kind of reactive measures like that. uh, And hopefully we'll start to see more proactive measures, mainly just being, you know, not prescribing as freely or prescribing less or having more restrictions or just, you know, not not doling out those pills in the same way that they have been. I actually read somewhere that that was actually a concern during COVID. Why one of the reasons when they started shutting a lot of these places down, they left a lot of the liquor stores open. And I, I assume because everybody was just needed to calm their nerves. But it actually, some of it I read had to do with they were scared of, they were worried for alcoholics just going cold turkey because there is, for some of these people, there's deadly consequences to just stopping. Absolutely. You can have, I mean, when you go through withdrawal, it can be really dangerous depending on the substance you're addicted to, how addicted you are to it. And so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it is a dangerous process. And and not only are you dealing with physical signs like, you know, vomiting and nausea and, you know, chills and shakes and all of that, but you also, I mean, are, are going through this mind game of, you know, it's mentally, it changes your brain when you're on substances. And then to all of a sudden not have that, you go through really difficult mental changes. And that's another issue in it in itself and i think it's interesting um living in a time where mental health is talked about more i think it's a great thing and that is definitely a big part of it too is you i mean when you go through addiction and then you go through recovery there are changes that happen to your brain and i think that's worth considering and you know realizing yeah that's that's a huge part of it is the access to mental health and you're right mental health is definitely talked about more but we haven't figured out a way to make it accessible to people that I think it should. I I think that's so important, Uh, especially, you know, it's a little off topic, but children, um, one of the best things I always thought they could do is just learn how to cope with their feelings or understand themselves a little bit better at some point. But that's, that's a big issue in general, I think in, in this country anyway. 
It absolutely is. And thankfully, though, I do think it's getting better. I feel like even Mm -hmm. just since COVID, especially, you know, there were so many awful things that happened with the pandemic. But I do think there are little silver linings, one of them being that I think people talk about mental health more freely and really prioritize that. And it's just more of a conversation, which is so important. And I think we are learning things every day and figuring out how to have those conversations and talk about it and be open about it. So I think we're definitely on the right path. You know, there's always more work to be done. And like you said, accessibility is a huge issue. But I feel like things are headed in the right direction. So hopefully we can, you know, check back in in a little bit and see that that's true. Yeah, I think I think it's going there. We're we're definitely understanding, you know, what society society as a whole, I think, is is starting to realize it. Now, how we're going to get there, I don't, I don't know, but yeah. uh, but hopefully, and then you know, in a, who knows, maybe a decade or so, we'll we'll see. Um, in the book, obviously, this was your parents' restaurant. And it's called Deviate. Called Deviate Kitchen, yes. Okay. Now, is there one or is there more? Because I I listened to a podcast with you, and I think they had multiple restaurants, but I don't know if they were other restaurants or more Deviate. Yeah. Yeah. So my parents have been in restaurants um, for their entire life. So they met in a restaurant when my mom was 19 and my dad was 20. Or actually, now that I say that, I think my mom was 18 and my dad was 20. Um, And, you know, she was the the server or she was the hostess and he was the server. It was that, you know, cute story. And Mm. they've continued throughout their whole life being in restaurants. But then they, when they moved to Lexington, Kentucky, which is my hometown, they decided to open their own concept. It's called Solgood Restaurant and Pub. Um, and then later they ended up opening Deviate Kitchen. And so they've recently sold Solgood, uh, but they did uh, previously have three locations. But now Deviate is their so- sole focus, and they just opened a second location in August. So they have two. That's entirely second chance. So everyone who works there is in recovery from substance use disorder. And, you know, they've loved it. And then me getting to watch them go through that process and literally dream up the concept and then open it has just been super pivotal in my life. It's been a really fun thing to be a part of and just watch them do. Well, you know, you, you talk about isolation one of the great things is having people who have been through it together, they can really lean on each other because there's an understanding there of how addiction works. Absolutely. That is the biggest thing, I think, of, of DB. The two main criteria, or not criteria, but I guess the two things that are foundational with deviate is one is transparency and two is accountability. Um, So people are able to be transparent and they're able to hold each other accountable. And that's something that is ingrained in the deviate culture. And it's, you know, what my parents have found to work. It's also ingrained in recovery as a whole. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that those two go hand in hand. But yeah, accountability is huge. And being able to have that connection is super crucial uh, for people in recovery. And so being able to see that culture being fostered at DV has been really neat. Not to get down, but do you have any, well, let, let's put it this way. Do, do you have a a favorite story from there? And do you have one that's sad? Absolutely. Again? Yeah. So um, I wouldn't say I necessarily have a favorite story just because I think they're all so special in their own way. Cliche answer, but it's true. But definitely. And I mean, one thing is this range of stories that I tell are, it's pretty big because with addiction comes so much happiness and there's hope, there's redemption, you know, the power of second chances and, and just all of that is so great. But obviously there's also so much devastation and heartbreak. And I think that the stories I tell kind of touch on both sides of that spectrum and everything in between. So, I mean, there are a lot of really good moments that I tell. There are a lot of really bad moments. Um, 
So as far as one of my favorite stories, it would just be kind of the woman who was the catalyst for Deviate. Um, so I'm not sure how much you want to dive, want me to dive into it. Do you want me to kind of tell it's, the story? It's, yeah, you can go right ahead. Uh, yeah. I don't want to give away your book either. So it's up to you what yeah. you want to dive No, I, I appreciate that. I'll give kind of a little uh, synopsis, leave out some details. But basically, uh, the catalyst for Deviate, there were a lot of different things that added up to it. One being that my dad is in recovery himself and my mom went through his journey to sobriety with him. You know, that whole that whole part of their journey together was a huge catalyst. But they one of the biggest kind of pivotal, I guess, events that happened is they were working at Solgood and they were really close with their staff members and, you know, really got along with everyone. And, you know, they supervised them, they worked with them. My parents are hard workers, always in the restaurant, you know, they're, they're getting down and dirty and doing it all. And one of the women that they had really come to know was this phenomenal server. And she was so smart and so good at her job. It's so personable, charismatic. She was beautiful. And they just loved her and I loved her and I knew her well. And basically one night my mom was in the bathroom. She was cleaning. And uh, this was, I mean, years ago. And she found in one of the cabinets, a ramekin and a spoon. She's like, oh, this is weird. And so she didn't really think much of it. She kind of thought maybe someone was eating in the bathroom and she threw it away. And then the next night she found it again. And so she was like, okay, this is really weird. This is intentional. Someone's putting this here. So she Googled it. And of course found out that that is a lot of times how people intravenously inject drugs. And, you know, that's something that you might hear now and you might be like, oh, well, of course it was for that. But that was not a part of the conversation. It was not in the news like it is today. Um, so she found that out. My parents ended up calling the police and having the police come and investigate and kind of interview everyone who was there. And long story short, they ended up finding out that it was that server that they had grown to love. And they were dumbfounded, like out of Everyone that was working that shift could not believe it was her. And so basically my family went through this kind of journey with her. Uh, they, My parents ended up firing her from the restaurant and kind of taking her under their wing a little bit and, and trying to build this relationship and help her get sober. And through it, we learned a lot of lessons. That was definitely the first time I had really ever seen someone grapple with addiction and she struggled. She relapsed more than once. Um, we lost contact with her for periods of years, and then she would resurface sober. We'd reconnect, and then she'd relapse again. And it was just this kind of constant ebb and flow. But she really taught us a lot of lessons. And you know, now we are so happy that she is fully sober. She's actually now working for a recovery center in Kentucky, and she's able to use her experience and help other women, you know, on their road to sobriety. So it's just been super cool seeing this full circle moment with her and just learning firsthand how it affects people. And she was a huge reason that I think I personally learned that addiction doesn't discriminate because again, I mean, I, and you never would have seen that coming from her. And that's a story that so many people have. And so, yeah, I mean, just hope and redemption, like I said, is, is a huge part of her story and so many others in the book. And then as far as the other end of the spectrum, there is so much heartbreak. And one of the deviant employees over the years that I got to know the best uh, he was this incredible man and he worked at Deviate. He was like a fan favorite. Everyone loved him. I mean, social media posts, I do the social media for Deviate and it would go crazy when we would post pictures of him. And he ended up really struggling. He relapsed and unfortunately he did overdose um, and he passed away. And so I kind of tell his story uh, and I talk to his mom and I really share it from her perspective, which 
I think was a really, I was gracious or not gracious. I was grateful that she was vulnerable in letting me tell her story from her perspective because uh, it's a heartbreaker and it's touching. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many ups and downs when it comes to addiction. So that's definitely reflected in the book. Yeah. When did your parents decide to open the restaurant? Like, What was the catalyst for that? Yeah. So they had been thinking of this idea for a long time. And it was like that when they opened their first restaurant. I mean, they'd wanted to have their own concept. My dad had always dreamed about it. My mom said she would help him out and support him. And, you know, they would do it together. But they kind of never really wanted to do it until my dad ended up losing his job and they decided to do it and it worked really well and they loved it and they had such a great experience and things were going really good they were expanding that concept and they were you know figuring out how it looked to own their own business and throughout it all my mom was really wanting to do something charitable she was wanting to find some philanthropic way to give back to the community and specifically uh, she I had the idea of wanting to employ people that were unemployable. So in Lexington, she had really gotten involved with this organization called Natalie Sisters, and it serves sexually exploited women. So basically women working in prostitution. And she saw in this community and in the city that we loved, and you know, I would walk the streets downtown, I felt safe, and it was this wonderful place, but it had some really tough parts to it. And you kind of would never think if you didn't know, if you didn't go into certain parts of town, that just how bad it was. And she saw that firsthand and realized that at the root of a lot of it was addiction and that was something that she'd come to know really well with my dad because he got sober early on in their marriage and she'd kind of seen that happen and so she honestly for years uh, kind of pestered him and you know tried to work on him and convince him to open a restaurant that would employ the unemployable and my dad pushed back he absolutely did not want to do it and the biggest reason is because he is a businessman through and through and he has a great heart just like my mom but he was concerned about turning a profit hmm. he was like you know if we open this restaurant that employs the unemployable no one's going to want to come to yeah. it and it's going to fail and so he pushed back so it, i mean it was a years long process and things uh, kept happening over the course of a few years, my parents at their other location or their other restaurant lost 13 employees to addiction. And I think kind of just the culmination of it all. And then with the story of that woman that I told you about, I think it just all kind of came together. And finally, my dad was like, okay, we can give it a try. And, you know, the rest is history. So people did come to the restaurant. I can see where he's coming from now. You're thinking... Absolutely. And, you know, the funny thing is the first three months they opened, that wasn't the case. No one did come. My dad was completely right. And it was honestly uh, pretty much a failure. So after three months of it just not working, no one coming in, them not making money, they decided to kind of reevaluate, number one, how they got their employees and how they found them, and then also how they marketed it to the Lexington community. And so they went back to the drawing board, figured it all out, came back, and that's when it really took off. So once they kind of did a little revision round and figured out how they wanted to go about it, that's when it took off. And the Central Kentucky community has just been incredible and so supportive. So that's been really cool to see. What was the change that they made? What were some of the changes they made? I'm just interested because what what made people change their minds and want to try it? Yeah, absolutely. So a big change was how they got their employees. They, 
you know, starting out, they would hire pretty much just anyone who wanted a job, anyone off the streets. Um, And they ended up finding out that partnering with recovery communities in Lexington was the best way to find candidates that were ready for a job. Because a lot of times when you're early on in your sobriety, you're not, I mean, you're not ready. You're just trying to make it through the day and not use. And so they weren't ready for the responsibility of a job. They weren't prepared. Um, And so then they weren't very great employees. So my parents realized that very quickly and they partnered with recovery facilities who then would be able to basically source candidates, tell them who might be ready, who would be a good fit for the position. So that was crucial. And then also my dad kind of realized that by focusing so much on spreading the mission of what they were doing with this restaurant by hiring people in recovery, customers uh, were kind of equating this was second rate food. So they were seeing it as this nonprofit that was, you know, helping people out. And they figured that if they went, the service wouldn't be good and the food wouldn't be good. And so my dad really worked hard to kind of change that perception. And he was like, okay, you know, you shouldn't expect uh, service that is, you know, worse than competitors or food that is worse than competitors, you should expect food that is better than competitors. Because the whole idea of this is that, you know, we aren't doing these people who are in recovery a favor. I mean, we are, we're giving them, you know, skills and abilities and opportunities that they might not have. But I mean, people in recovery are just like you and me and they're capable of excellence. And so that's what we're going to provide. So my dad made sure to really drill that in in his training and in his hiring and in his marketing of like hey come here and you're gonna get great food you're gonna get great service and we're i mean it's not second rate in any way and i mean it's not the food is awesome the service is awesome and then you know people started coming in and once they realized that that was true they kept coming back and they told their friends and it really just took off word of mouth yes and now you do the marketing for him so Yes, exactly. It's a nice little way to stay connected even when I was in Georgia and then even now being in South Carolina. Are they um, are they good? Are, I'm sure you're better with the marketing online and stuff like that, but is, <laughs> are they okay with that? or? Honestly, yeah. My parents, I feel like, have their hands in everything, and they're very classic type A. So, you know, they're of the mentality like, oh, if you want something, you know, to get done right, you should do it yourself. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they've found awesome people that have really helped them. And they're pretty digitally savvy, I'll say. I, yeah. I definitely think that I take the cake when it comes to managing the Instagram and Facebook and social media pages. But they know what they want. They know what they like. And my mom, actually, I used to, when I was in high school, take all the pictures and create the content myself. And now when I go home and visit, I will go and take a bunch of pictures so I have this stockpile. But my mom is awesome at the photography. She's gotten really good. And she'll send yeah. me you know, the specials and everything. I know. they. It's also like interesting with that stuff it's so easy to be so creative with photography now because i do it on my phone for the show you know it's like exactly it's gotten so accessible in the best way and it's even funny being in tv news and seeing how that plays into our jobs because we use these big old bulky cameras and they're awesome and they've gotten so good now but also sometimes you know something happens and you don't have your camera and you can whip out your phone and it's great i mean there's it's crazy to see how technology's evolved i know well some of it yeah you're right some of it is so good like some of these cameras on there are like you know, I might as well have the lens and the big. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. So she's been able to use her phone and she actually also has a camera. So she's been using that. But yeah, she's great. And I think it's cool how, like you said, it just is almost accessible to everyone. Yeah. Uh, like So yeah, she's had fun with it. In your uh, research for the book, just because I, yeah. I was looking up some things. Did you do any studying on trying to 
decriminalize drug use like they did. I know they did in Portugal. And I think when they hear that, I think they think of it differently than what it is. So decriminalization means not that everybody just gets to run around on the streets and take drugs in the middle of the road and and do things like that. It's just really um, not treating it as a criminal act that incarcerates people. It's more treating it as addiction. And there's still, I think, penalties in Portugal for selling or you have a certain amount on you and things like that. But anyway, I'm I'm asking you a question and I jumped in there. No, I appreciate it. It's honestly, it's something I... I touched on in the book it's not something I directly address and that's what I realized through writing it is number one the concept just of the book and what I chose to write about expanded so much more than I expected it to going in but also through that I mean there are so many different aspects that I could talk about when it comes to addiction and recovery and there's so much that I don't have you know I, I there just aren't enough pages in the world to talk about it all so I don't touch on it super directly but um I mean even just through researching and through hearing about how certain systems exist. I definitely think it's an issue that would be worth exploring. It's, I mean, there are so many complexities and different facets of it. I do think kind of two main thoughts on it is one, I don't know if decriminalizing it is necessarily the best option, but one thing I do think that it could potentially help with would be fentanyl. So that is something that is causing a lot of overdoses right now, and it's basically the substance being mixed into drugs uh, to make them a little bit more potent. But there is no sort of regulation, obviously, because these drugs are illegal. And so it is not being regulated at all. So it, you know, you could be mixing in the drugs and there's no regulations, no ways to see what you're doing. And so someone could be taking a pill that they think is totally fine. And it ends up being laced with this crazy amount of fentanyl that sends them into an overdose. So um, again, I don't know if decriminalization is necessarily the best option, but I do think it could potentially help with regulations of illegal drugs. I mean, which is a tricky issue because, you know, you do worry about if that would make the problem worse or not. But I do think that could potentially be a solution to that. And then another thing is there are initiatives to keep people out of prison or out of jail since incarceration is something that I mean, jails are overcrowded, prisons are overcrowded. So there are initiatives like drug court, which is something I talk about in my book that basically it helps to keep people out of prison and instead puts them in this program where they basically get to go through recovery and they have a parole officer and they have weekly drops, which is basically drug testing to make sure that they're staying clean. And there are a lot of conditions that come along with this program and it's offered in most states. Um, And every state looks a little bit different, but uh, for a lot of people, one of the conditions of drug court is employment. So we have a lot of people at Deviate that my parents work with that, um, you know, go through drug court. It's a great program, and I think similar programs are also really great. It also has a lot of downfalls, and I think that's like with anything. Nothing's going to be 100% perfect, so I I think it's going through and, you know, seeing what we can do, seeing what we can implement, and kind of what works and what's the best. Yeah, so I don't know. I have mixed feelings on it myself, Um, but I do feel like the way it was treated in the last 20 years has made it so much worse. I I think it's, you know, like the three strike rule and and things like that to put somebody away for life for what equates to an illness to me is just morally wrong. Absolutely. And that's what, that's kind of one of those things that I think is kind of this iffy concept to grasp. I think a lot of people see it differently, but I mean, 
a lot of people, myself included, really truly do believe that addiction is a disease and it is an illness. And now it looks different for a lot of people. And I think, again, it is, it's not something that you can see like a, a physical ailment, but like I was talking about earlier, it rewires the brain. You act differently when you're on a substance and when you're off. And, so, uh, you know, certain people are more prone to addiction and there are all these different factors that can kind of play into it. But the best analogy, and I do mention this in my book, that I've, I think I've heard and I, I shared it is that I was speaking to the mom of the man who passed away that I mentioned earlier. And she was talking to me about how she views it. And she was like, you know, I see addiction as a disease in the same way that I see having skin cancer. So let's say growing up, you know, maybe I didn't hear that putting on sunscreen every day and using SPF was really important. So I went out in the sun, I fried and I ended up getting skin cancer. So I had this mole, I got it removed, and then I knew the dangers. At that point, I did. But you know what? I liked laying in the sun. I liked the way my skin looked like when I was yeah. tan. And, you know, I just thought, you know, what are the chances it comes back? It probably doesn't. And so she kept laying out and she got skin cancer again. And I think addiction is similar where it's like maybe at first you don't know all the risks associated with a substance. So you try it, you get addicted, and then you figure out, you know, the risk you're running. But you know, at that point, you kind of have this mentality like, oh, you know, maybe it wouldn't affect me like that again. Maybe, you know, there there are all these good things I like with it. Maybe it's OK. And then eventually it isn't. And I think that just because someone has, you know, made the decision maybe to start drugs or to try drugs or to stay on drugs, that doesn't mean that they don't have this problem that they can't control, that it, they don't have this sickness that needs treatment. And I think a lot of times it's really easy to pass judgment and, you know, yeah. see maybe it feels like choices that they've made, but it's a lot of times not that simple. Well, the one argument I've heard is they're going to say it's a choice because it was illegal and you decided to do it in the first place and then got hooked. Yeah. And, and yes, but I don't know. I don't know if there's something in the brain, though, that makes somebody more apt to try something like that or if, if addiction is deep seated. I, I have no clue. Yeah. I don't know if you studied that and, and saw yeah. some kind of connection. A little bit. Well, so first of all, what I would say to that is that number one, with it being illegal, a lot of people start out and get addicted on legal drugs. That's you know, they got true. their wisdom teeth out and they, you know, were overprescribed and then all of a sudden they can't afford this anymore and their doctor's not giving them prescriptions, so they turn to other drugs. But at that point they're already addicted. I mean, yeah. they already have a problem and it was completely legal. And then another thing is there are people, tons of people out there, I think way more than people realize that this is all they've known. And that is kind of a different I guess, means of getting addicted that uh, we don't always see as much, but certainly is reflected in a lot of deviant employees is, you know, when you grow up and you're five years old and your mom's addicted, your dad's addicted, your grandparents, your siblings, your aunts, your uncles, everyone you know is addicted. That's what you know. And that's what you do. And that's your way of life. And so, I mean, how would you know any different? So I do think that that's kind of a crucial key is a lot of people are starting out and, you know, they get addicted kind of without realizing what's happening. Then as far as what makes people more prone to addiction, so it doesn't discriminate. It can affect everyone, and that's kind of the big point of it. But at the same time, there are certain factors that do make people more prone to addiction. For example, there are different, it rewires certain people's brains differently. And also another thing is growing up, if you experience certain types of trauma, a lot of times mm. you're more likely to turn to substance use to kind of cope with that, which can then start an addiction. And then the the younger you start, so, you know, your brain, I believe it's 25 when yeah. your brain is 
developed. And a lot of people think that the earlier you start, the bigger you your chances are of becoming addicted later in life. So there are a lot of different maybe things that can make you predisposed to being addicted. But the scary thing is, is, you know, you don't know until you try. And that's what's so scary is you don't you don't want to get to that point where, you know, you're too far gone. And, yeah, like, and you know, like, would be. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's a very scary thing. Um, but yeah. Does your brain ever go back to what it was before? Or is it just totally rewired at this point? That's a great question. It's one I don't entirely know. I do know that you can make progress on getting it back to how it was pre-substance use. I don't know if it ever goes fully back. I would doubt it. Um, but. but that is, yeah, I don't I don't probably think it ever goes fully back. But uh, I do know that's a huge area that people in the medical community are studying. And it is because this is something that's just now starting to get, you know, huge attention and federal funding and things like that. So there's more and more being learned about addiction and recovery every single day. Um, and it's certainly something that is becoming more and more studied. But yeah, I mean, it's a it's a crazy thing. And it literally does change the way your brain works and the way it's wired. I know, it's amazing. And and you're right, it's 25. That floored me when I figured that out, because I was like, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's we crazy. At 21. <laughs> Exactly. That's what I was going to say. It's crazy. And I mean, that's just, I mean, in other countries too, it's even younger. Um, yeah, so, I hear that. In Europe, yeah. a lot of kids are drinking wine. and Exactly. So it's all crazy. And I don't think anyone knows how to best approach it. And I think, I mean, obviously we don't have all the answers and that's okay, but I think just approaching it and really trying to talk about it and figure out, hey, what does work best? Let's just throw out options. Let's see. Let's talk about it. I think that's really crucial. Do you think you have more books in you about the topic or this is the first step and we'll see where we go? Yeah, you know, I'll say taking it day by day, starting uh, to write a book at the beginning of my senior year of college. And then as I transition to my first job has definitely been a challenge. It's been a long process, um, but it's been really, really great. And, you know, I've, I've learned a lot through it all. So maybe one day, I think for the time being, you know, I'll, I'll kind of stop here and see how it goes. But it's been a really great process. And I mean, there is so much more to talk about surrounding the subject. There is so much more to share and just dive into. One thing that I do see maybe one day happening is maybe not me writing it myself, but maybe having my parents kind of share a little bit more from their perspective. So, you know, I, I do tell their story and I do tell a lot of things from what I've witnessed seeing them go through their entire journey, but I think they have their own story to share. So they always talk about it. You know, maybe one day we'll do this too. So I'd love to help support them in that and, you know, maybe help them with that one day, but we'll see taking it by, day by day. Yeah, I hear you. Now, you're a local journalist, right? You like doing the local stuff? I do. I do. Yeah. So I really enjoy being um, in local news because I think I just love being able to get to know the community I'm a part of and kind of tell very community-focused, community-driven stories. Um, so that's really what I love. I think you're also able to see the impact more, which is really special. Yeah, I just love it. And I love learning about my community. So I've never lived in South Carolina before. And I moved here a week before I started my job. But what better way to get to know a community than by, you know, covering it and reporting on it. So yeah, yeah I love it. So is that something you always wanted to do? Be a journalist? Yeah, that's so funny. I actually was at work the other day and one of my coworkers was like, okay, like when you were growing up, what was your dream job? And I was sitting at my desk editing together a story and I was like, honestly, it was this, which I mean, sounds so crazy. But when I was in middle school, I was on my school's speech team um, and I competed in a category called radio broadcasting where I basically put together a news story. I was kind of on this tight timeline and I pieced it together and then I presented it in front of a panel of judges and I 
loved it. Uh, it was, I thought it was so fun. I thought it was so exciting and I was pretty good at it. And I really liked that. And then I also growing up loved photography, which I feel like so many people do. Again, we talked earlier about how, yeah. you know, that accessible, especially with phones developing how fast or as fast as they are. But I really did love photography and taking pictures and experimenting with that. And so my parents kind of gave me the idea when I was in middle school of like, hey, this, I mean, you could join the two and you could go into TV news and that's, you know, totally something you could go after. I also loved writing and reading growing up. And so I read a lot of stories and loved telling them. I always loved to talk. Um, and <laughs> so I kind of pursued it. And that's ultimately what made me look at UGA was their journalism program. And so I toured the school for the program, fell in love with it in every way. And I went and, you know, four years later, I'm kind of one of those non-traditional college students and that I came in as a journalism major and I left you as left one. As so, one. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. loved it. What do you think of the future of local news at this point you think it's yeah I don't say it's a, dying or anything like that but no, it, there's no, so many yeah there's so it, much out there now tough question because i am biased obviously because i think that local news is so important i also am not blind to what's happening and i think that was something that uga uh, and the grady college there was really good at uh, talking to students about is like hey Things are going to change. We don't know what the future is going to look like, but it is not going to stay the same. And so I think just keeping an open mind and being really prepared for that and open to new possibilities and open to seeing how things evolve is really crucial for people in the industry right now. I don't think local news will ever go away. I think yeah. it's always going to be really important to learn about what's happening in your community. In the same way, I think national news won't go away because you need to know what's happening nationally and internationally. And I, I just think news is so important, but I definitely think that the way we consume that news will change. And I think things are going towards a digital landscape, and I think that's going to continue to change. And um, you know, thing new technology is going to be invented, and you know, new platforms are going to come into existence so i think things will change but i definitely still think it's I, I don't know i think local news national news international news is always going to be important i always like the local news because i felt like you get to a certain level and it's like opinion <laughs> opinion oh, news at this point absolutely and honestly i'm not someone who loves politics i yeah. never have i'm i don't think i ever will and so that is something I think with national news. Again, I do think national news is so important. Um, and I've had great experiences learning about national news. And it is important. It's just not really where my heart is. And, you know, I just think so much of it gets so political, so partisan and just opinion based that that's not really something I'm interested in. Yeah. See, I I'm a big history. And then so a lot of that is political. So it's like I always right. like my finger on the pulse, but then I have to run away from it. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God. Absolutely. And that's the constant struggle because I think it's so important to be informed and know what's going on. But sometimes you go into information overload and it's like, okay, yeah. I'll step back. I, li I really like reading my news more than I like watching it, to be honest with you. And Absolutely. I worked in um, at a newspaper for three years of college and loved it. I love print. And that's something that I'm really enjoying with digital and how things are evolving is I think, you know, getting news on, on web is really important and yeah. really how a lot of people consume news. So I also like kind of being able to have a hand in that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. The time we're in, it's just so much information and it, it's almost like, well, you could see during COVID, I mean, you could tell just if there's, so much to look at and so much to read and so much to watch it's like information overload 
at some point. I don't think it's great for your mental health either all the time. I don't either. And that's one thing that I do think that journalists, especially local journalists, you know, who are able to build that trust with the community, hopefully, I think that's something that they can kind of help with is informing the public and helping parse through that information, helping make it make sense and helping draw attention to, you know, the things that you need to know. I think that's important. And hopefully I, you know, stays important because it it is so overwhelming to just scroll through Twitter and see so much going on and you don't know who said what and what's true and what's not and what to care about and all this different stuff. So, I mean, it's hard. I think there's a lot of beauty in having information at your fingertips, but it can also be a challenge. Yeah, well, listen, it's it's fantastic that I have a thought in my head that <laughs> I could just say, oh, yeah, yeah, how does that work? And I just Google it, and, and I can find out in 0.2 seconds. Exactly. But, you know, it, to me, the local news is actually probably more important for the individuals living in the community. Everybody's always so concerned with the national news, but the local news is really more what affects you. Um, absolutely in your day-to-day it it absolutely does and yeah so I mean that's part of why I think it's so important and why I really enjoy it because I do feel like it's able to impact people day of or day after like you see this really immediate impact based on what's happening locally and I I don't know I think there's an association of a lot of times with news being so negative and it can be sometimes and you know you do need to know what's bad and what to avoid and what's going on but i also do think especially in local news there's a lot of opportunity to showcase really good things going on um no cool events happening or, or whatever might be going on in the community um so i also like that aspect of it yeah it's hard around here well it's all over the world i guess that uh, digital is just you know taking over all the local yeah. It's putting everybody out at a business. Or I guess they're just evolving in a different way. And that's the hope. The hope, I think, is that you know we end up figuring out a way to break into the digital sphere in a way that's effective and in a way that makes people like consuming news in this new way and kind of just trying to keep, again, an open mind. I think that's really important because I think people get really set in their ways no matter the age and no matter the, I mean, this doesn't relate only to news or only to the media, but I don't know, just keeping an open mind because I don't think any one of us knows what the future is going to look like when it comes to technology, but I think we can all agree that it's going to look different. Mm -hmm. Um, So just being ready and prepared for that change and open to it and not trying to resist it is really important. Yeah. So why don't you tell us, when is the book coming out first? I forget if it's September. It is September. So it'll come out at the end of September and it'll be available in bookstores like Barnes & Nobles, but it'll also be probably the easiest way uh, to get it is on Amazon. um, And it's going to be in paperback and ebook format. And then eventually it'll also be available in hardcover and audiobook. But yeah. for the time being, end of September, you can expect the paperback and ebook to go out. The last two years, I've gotten really into the ebooks. I used to just read my book. I was like, I can't do that. That yeah. takes away the, you know, it just, I used to like the feel of a book. But you know what? It is easy. It is just... easy. Yeah. And same thing with podcasting. I resisted that for the longest time. I was yeah. like, oh, no into that but i mean it's it's a great way to consume it especially when you're driving that's when i found i really like it um yeah yeah what's really cool is i'll eventually be able to record the ebook myself so um uh or not the ebook but the audiobook so yeah i'm excited for that opportunity yeah well thank you for joining me and taking a little time out of your day i know you're busy so i'm glad we were able to do it and it was a great conversation and when the book comes out you know i'm gonna pick up a copy and maybe we'll we'll talk again Yeah, absolutely. Jason, I would love that. Thank you so much for having me on and, you know, dealing with my crazy schedule. I appreciate it. And I'm just grateful for this chat we had. It was great. Yeah, well, it's the life of a podcaster. (laughs) It's just dealing with different times. Yes. 
All right. Well, thank you again. Maybe talk again soon, hopefully. Okay. That sounds great. Thanks so much. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jayberg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast or go directly to jaybergshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape a while for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon.